Well, if you have your Bible, you can open to John 21, the very end of John's Gospel. And we'll be looking at that final section, just the last few verses. They can hear you on Zoom. Oh, okay, perfect. And as you're turning to John 21, uh, maybe some of you are familiar with a comedian by the name of Brian Regan. He has a a, a funny bit about how we are constantly trying to one-up each other and uh, always trying to outdo each other. He talks about the me monster. You know, it's all about me. And uh, there's always this tendency, someone who's got a better story, a better joke, a better experience. Oh, you had two wisdom teeth out? I had four. Uh, Mine were impacted. Uh, And he has all these examples like that. And then he finally gets to a point where he says, uh, you know, I, I would love to be one of the 12 astronauts who has walked on the moon and go to a party and have some guy just full of himself just going on and on about how he's got, you know, sports cars and a global empire and all that stuff, and then just be able to say, oh, yeah, uh, you know, I walked on the moon. And just, got, like, what, what are you going to say? That, that's the top. Like, I, and at one point, he, he actually, I don't even know if Brian Regan's a Christian, maybe, but he asks this question in the, in the comedy sketch. He says, uh, what is it about the human condition that we feel this need to top the other person's story. We have to put ourselves above the other person. Our passage speaks to that. It's not the only thing happening in the passage, but it's one of the main things, I think, is this game that we play called the comparison game. And that can really be, as you know, damaging to our faith and damaging to others to to play this comparison game or to also be prying into things that we, do not, we don't need to know, things about the future, how things will turn out. What will that other person's journey be like? Uh, will they face the trials that I face? How does their experience compare to mine? Uh, what about them, Lord? Those are the questions that we often are, are tempted to ask, and they're not always productive. And so let's pray, and then I'll read it for us. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would teach us from John's Gospel And we believe this is your holy word, that it's inspired and authoritative, and it gives us what we need for life and godliness. And so we pray that you would open our ears, open our hearts, and that you would speak to each one of us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So John 21, beginning at uh, verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, following them, the one who, had also, who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so, uh, the, the background is that the Apostle John had to deal with this rumor in the early church. The rumor was that Jesus had supposedly told, uh, said that John was not going to die before the second coming. 
And so if people thought that, if they thought, well, John won't die till the second coming, then if, if John got near death and died, that would mess with their expectations about Jesus' return. That would give them some misguided expectations, and that would be devastating if John died and Jesus had not returned. And so John wants to clarify that. Uh, John's writing many, many years later. John's the latest gospel writer uh, in terms of the number of years that had transpired. He'd had the lo- longest stretch of, of, of just pondering and, and thinking about all that Jesus had done. And John wants to give that clarity. But in so doing, he gives us this uh, window on, on, on this dynamic of the comparison game and the, the importance of, of, of following Jesus. Like, I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what else is happening. And the Lord calls each of us simply to follow him on the path that he has given us. Uh, not someone else's path. Everyone's on a different, slightly different road, right? We're all going the same direction towards Jesus. We're all headed this for the same eternal inheritance, but we all have some circuitous ways that we get there. And, and, and God wants us to follow Christ on the, uh, given the unique circumstances and gifts and opportunities that he's given us. And so the main point is real simple. Follow Jesus. That's the essence of it. But I want to look at three things. Uh, how do we do that? Three, three ways that we can do that. One, rejoice in your calling. Rejoice in your particular calling. Secondly, resist that comparison game. And then third is to revere Jesus. I had to have an R word for that final point. So uh, rejoice in your calling, resist the comparison game, and revere Jesus. We could have said, worship Jesus. Be enthralled with Jesus. Be caught up in what Jesus is and what he's doing. Any of those things would have worked, but I had to get the alliteration. So, rejoice in your calling. So, verse 20, I want to just, before we move into the passage too far, I want to notice that John sets this up by inserting a phrase that wasn't really necessary. He says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. He could have ended it right there. But he added, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said. Uh, he's already identified that the disciple whom Jesus loved is, is John. But I think he wants to emphasize that moment uh, earlier in the story, John 13, where, where John leaned against Jesus. And to emphasize something of the friendship, of the, of the depth of intimacy between Jesus and John. And, and of course, that raises a question for people sometimes if if he's the disciple whom Jesus loved, what about the other guys? <laughs> doesn't Jesus love those guys too? Uh, doesn't Jesus love everybody? Right? We teach our kids, you, you need to love everybody. Uh, but I think he's emphasizing this, this depth of friendship that he had with John. I mean, yes, Jesus loves every single believer with absolute, deep, steadfast love. Every believer is, his, is the apple of his eye. Uh, the Son of God loved each one of us and gave himself for us. So in that sense, there's no favoritism, or anything like that. But during Jesus' earthly life as a human being, he had some friendships that were deeper than others. And he had a deeper friendship with Peter and James and John. And that's really a part of human experience, isn't it? If, we, if someone had exactly the same type of friendships with every single person in their life, we'd say, that's kind of weird. And that person's like a robot. Uh, don't they have different levels of, of friendship? 
And so um, the Lord's closest earthly friend was John. That, that's, that's amazing that, that John was best friends with Jesus. Uh, I've always marveled at that. Uh, and, and also that uh, Peter was very close as well. And both of these men, Peter and John, are central all of chapter 21. Uh, they're pretty interesting, these two, aren't they? Peter and John. Uh, John, if you go back in, to the first half of the chapter, the fishing story uh, where Jesus helps them catch the 153 fish. Uh, and it's, it's John who recognizes that it's Jesus on the shore. It, it's the Lord, but it's Peter who jumps in. Uh, John is, is kind of a man of understanding. Uh, Peter is a man of action. So long before you had Myers-Briggs, long before Enneagram, you had two kinds of people. People who think and people who do stuff. You got John and you got Peter. Uh, the, the, the contemplative life, John, and the active life. Now, of course, it doesn't, you know, it breaks down a little bit because John does lots of things. John's very active and Peter is going to write books of the Bible. He's a thinker. Uh, so, but generally, John's more of a thinker and a listener and has a sense of wonder and, and wants to respond. And Peter is more active, more disruptive. He's going to make things happen. And so uh, my point in saying that is that both of those types are desperately needed in the body of Christ. And, and so uh, we all have different roles, different callings and gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same God. There's a Trinitarian thing going on there. Who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. And so, every single person in this room is needed. Every single person has an important role to play no one should ever, ever think, well, I'm, I'm sort of an add-on. The, the, the other people are the ones who are really doing the important stuff. Every single person. If you get a gift from the Holy Spirit, there's no higher uh, description that could be said about some, something you receive. If, if the Holy Spirit gives you that gift, uh, you better use it. The body of Christ needs you, whether you are active or contemplative. You know, some of you serve in the nursery, and maybe you're contemplative and you serve in the nursery and you just contemplate the kids, marveling at these little ones. Some of you are very active and you, you just get in there and roughhouse and play and, and you're good at engaging the kids. Uh, we need every kind of person, whether it's nursery or, or setup or, or all, you know, Lord willing, at some point Sunday school kicks back up and uh, we all are needed. It's not about, there's no such thing as a spectator in the body of Christ. We're, we are all called to serve. And you might say, well, I'm not really gifted in some particular area, but you can just dive in. You can say, you know, put me to work. Uh, what needs to happen? And that's often how you learn your gift is by just jumping in. Uh, there's some kind of a false humility. At times there's a false humility where we say, uh, well, I don't have anything to offer. I'm not gifted. But that can sort of take a form of almost uh, a weird inverted pride. Uh, Chris Hutchinson's a PCA pastor back east in Virginia who wrote a book about humility, and he said, he said this, in the name of humility, self-disparaging Christians think they have little to offer and thus spend more time bemoaning their deficiencies than serving with whatever abilities they have. 
uh, which are, in fact, quite sufficient for God's purposes. God sees things differently. Nothing is small to Him when it is done with love and humility. True humility takes no joy in underestimating one's worth or gifts, but rather continues to serve even in times of healthy self-doubt and reevaluation. So there are those times when you think, maybe I'm in the wrong, <laughs> I'm doing the wrong thing. I'm serving in the wrong ministry. That, that's worth looking at. But just jump in somewhere, right? The Lord can use your gifts, even if you think they're small. So that's kind of our first point, is, uh, is to rejoice in the way God made you. Uh, it is good. He knew what He was doing. And He's going to use you to bless His people. Second point is to resist the comparison game. And that's where we get to verse 21. And Peter looks at John and says, Lord, what about this man? And in a lot of debate about what's going on there in Peter's question. Is that just curiosity? Uh, is it envy? Is it com- competition? Uh, a lot of commentators, modern commentators, say it's envy, but a lot of ancient commentators don't think that, which I find interesting. Uh, one early church father, Chrysostom, says it was genuine concern uh, that, that Peter's, Peter has been entrusted with the future of the church to some extent, right? On this rock, I will build my church. So Peter's very invested in the future of the church, and Peter's looking at John and saying, if John is going to be martyred, or if John's going to die, uh, you know, are we going to be able to keep on ministering together side by side as we've done for years? Uh, I don't know exactly what was going through Peter's mind. Was he, was he just wondering? Was he just curious? Uh, maybe he's just, he's just asking to see things that are not his to see. Is he trying to pry into the decrees of God, the plan of God? That's tempting. We, we all think that would be tempting, to know the future. But God uh, knows that it would not be good for us to know the future. Uh, how does the Lord answer Peter, verses 22 and 23? If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? I, I wonder what Jesus' facial expression was at that point. Is he kind of amused? Is it a rebuke? Uh, Jesus is gentle. Um, but he has to clarify this, this misunderstanding um, that, that, that John's death would be wrapped up with the second coming. Uh, in the early centuries, by the way, there are some really bizarre views about John, like that he entered his tomb uh, while still alive, but then left it by divine power, transported up like uh, Enoch or Elijah. Uh, but Jesus never said, John's not going to die. He just said, Peter, if it's my will that he doesn't die, what would that be to you? So what's he saying? None of your business, Peter. Uh, which made me think of that uh, uh, fifth book of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Horse and His Boy, where you have Shasta, who finally meets the great lion Aslan and learns from Aslan the amazing story of his own young life and Aslan's part in his life. And Aslan tells Shasta the whole story of the boy's beginnings and journeys and helps Shasta understand what it all means. And then at one point, Shasta asks Aslan, would you explain the experiences of my traveling companion, Erebus? And Aslan says, I'm telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. And I think we need to frequently remind ourselves that I don't need to know everything. I don't need to know uh, about them as much as I need to know about me, what I'm called to do. Uh, The Lord is sovereign. He's good. He's faithful. 
You can trust Him. Uh, He's working out His will. He's free to do whatever He wants. He's free to do as He pleases. And, And when we can embrace that and let go of the comparison game, that actually frees us up to play our part. And so the Lord is, is, is helping Peter. He's helping free Peter from having to know everything. What are some of the signs that we are playing the comparison game? Well, wanting to know every detail about other people's lives and then turn around and share those details, which is often just called gossip. Uh, too much slavish imitation of another person's life and the way they do things rather than just being comfortable in your own skin. Uh, constantly looking for opportunities to point out the flaws of others, to nitpick them, Uh, idolizing other people, putting them on a pedestal, Um, resentment when good things happen to other people. Those are some of the ways that you can say, oh, there's a diagnostic here. I've fallen into this comparison trap. I think about moms a lot when I think about the comparison game. Young moms are under a lot of pressure Uh, to conform to everybody else's expectations of what a good mom should do. Moms already have enough pressure they're putting on themselves. They don't need extra pressure uh, to have the perfect homes, the perfect kids, the perfect appearance, and that is exhausting. And the Lord Jesus, who said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, If, if moms are frantic and exhausted and carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders, uh, something's wrong. And we need to help them not, not feel that, that burden. We need to help lift that burden off of young moms. And so that's one area of life. Another stage of life I think we face this comparison game is the, um, is the retirement years. Uh, it's interesting to see how Jesus, back in uh, verses 18 and 19, talks to Peter and says, When you were young, you, you dressed yourself, you walked wherever you wanted, but when you were old, you will stretch out your hands... And another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this, he said, to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. Peter was going to be martyred for the faith. But it's not only, I think, uh, I think there's implications, not only about, about Peter's death, but also there, there is a time that comes in your life where you're no longer able to do all the things you once did. You're not, you're, you don't have as much capacity. You're limited. You have fewer options. And you might feel like you're losing freedom, but, and you are losing some bodily freedoms, but we have to remember that Jesus defines freedom. John chapter 8, Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. What is freedom for Jesus? It's, freedom is not endless, infinite possibilities like thousands of vacation destinations. That's not Jesus' definition of freedom. Jesus' definition of freedom is, respond to me to be set free from all the things that would keep me from responding to Him. And so, uh, freedom is not about multiplying choices and having unlimited capabilities. The American dream kind of says that's what it is about, right? I want 50 million options on the cereal aisle, and I want uh, Spotify to have the music that I pull up at, a, at just an instantaneous command. Um, the Bible says freedom is is being able to respond to God, your Creator and your Redeemer, and then being set free uh, of things that would hinder that, not being shackled by pride and by laziness and by uh, anything that would keep us from reaching out to Him in worship and, and reaching out to others in love. So freedom is following Jesus. 
And Peter can do that no matter what age, no matter what the circumstances. And, and that's really one of the main themes is follow me. He says that twice in the passage. Peter, follow me. Keep your eyes on me. Don't lose sight of me. Don't look to the left or the right. Keep going. Press into me. Learn from me. Walk with me. Follow my example in being true to the calling and even to the point of being willing to lose your life for the sake of the kingdom. So those are our first two points. Uh, Rejoice in your calling. Resist the comparison game. But uh, if you're like me, you sort of feel like, okay, I get that. I know these things, but I keep on doing them. And I want power. Where do I find the power to start fresh and to make some progress in these things? And that takes us to our third point, which is to revere Jesus. And this is where we look at verses 24 and 25 because at the very end of John's gospel, it's amazing. John's gospel is profound, as you know. It's just layers upon layers of beauty and depth and richness. And in in the most simple language sometimes, the most profound things. And John's been pondering uh, all these things for decades. How is he going to wrap things up? I mean, talk about the pressure to come up with a good ending. Uh, He gives us this reminder that worshiping Jesus, marveling at Jesus, is the last word and the most helpful word. He says in 25, uh, were every one of these things that Jesus did to be written down, the world itself couldn't hold all the books. One of our uh, daughters, Rebecca, is uh, uh, she makes chocolate all day long at the Chocolate Cafe in Cannon Beach, and she lives in Seaside, two blocks from the ocean. I'm kind of jealous that she lives two blocks from the Pacific Ocean. And so, uh, I mean, no matter how many times you see the ocean, it just takes your breath away. Um, it's massive. It's 64 million square miles, and you could fit every continent. You could fit every piece of land in the world into the Pacific Ocean, and you'd have room left over. I think that's true. I looked it up on Wikipedia, but uh, (laughs) I mentioned the ocean because the great early uh, church father, Athanasius, uses that image of the ocean to, to connect with verse 25. He says, the achievements of the Savior effected by his incarnation are of such a kind and number that if anyone should wish to expound them, he would be like those who gaze at the expanse of the sea and wish to count its waves. For as one cannot take in all the waves with one's eyes, since those coming on, the the new waves, escape the perception of one who tries, so also one who would comprehend all the achievements of Christ in the body is unable to take in the whole, even by counting them up, for those that escape his thought are more than he thinks that he has grasped. So, so, you know, a wordy way to say what John said better in verse 25. But you get the idea that there are so many other things Jesus did. If you wrote them all down, you, you can't even begin to scratch the surface. And what I'm saying is that is what helps us with the comparison game. So the secret to dealing with the comparison game is to find something, someone that is so much better, so radiant, so praiseworthy, so stunning, that comparing yourself to others doesn't seem that relevant anymore. It just doesn't really matter as much anymore. Uh, So God made us. We we are wired with this capacity for comparison. That's a God-given thing, to notice distinctions, 
to compare A to B, and, and so that's a gift, but God wants us to use that rightly, to tune that to the right frequency, and so if we could do it this way, if we could say, well, I'm going to look at myself and say, I see brokenness, I see weakness, I see selfishness, I see limitations, I see inconsistencies, but then I look at Jesus, I see none of those things. I see the radiance of the glory of God. I see the exact imprint of God's nature. He is breathtaking. He's my king. He's my champion. He's my refuge. His perfections and his works are like the ocean. His faithfulness, his love, his covenant. And and if that person who has all the splendor and all the glory, the one who is the great I am, the son of God, is the one who controls my destiny and is using my life, and if he came and died for me and is, is committed to me, and he's promised that he's with me every moment, and if he's promised that I will one day be fully redeemed and I will, I will be with him face to face, and, and certainly at that moment there will be no need whatsoever for comparison to others, Right? only just joy and mutual delight basking in His presence. If all that's true, then I can learn even now to get into that mode and to resist the comparison game. So uh, a few years ago, I was at a Mariners game with my son Sam and my dad and my brother-in-law, and we were watching Felix Hernandez, King Felix. You guys Mariners fans? Uh, It's tough times right now. Um, but Felix was making the other team look silly, and he pitched like eight innings, gave up zero runs and, and total domination of the other team, and they took him out of the game, and there was like 38,000 people rising to their feet in acclamation, honoring King Felix for this brilliant performance. And at that moment, I was not thinking, how do I look? I've always had this weird thing with my baseball caps. I always have to ask Sarah, does this look bad. My head's the wrong shape, and these baseball hats don't fit quite right. When when 39,000 people, we were all, I want to say worshiping, that's that's not the right word, right, appreciating what what was happening. Uh, It's it's an analog, right, to to the worship instinct. You you find this thing that you feel is praiseworthy, and you clap, and you cheer. Uh, I wasn't thinking about what does the guy next to me think of me right now? It's irrelevant. It's totally irrelevant because we're shoulder to shoulder marveling at this pitching performance. You get swept up in that. It frees you just to be yourself and just to be a fan. And so, I mean, a million times more, that's the case with Jesus. We have a king and there's no one like him. And the gospel enables us to rejoice in what he's doing in our lives, to resist the comparison game and to to move forward, marveling at him. And so when we are tempted to comparison, let's change that dynamic. Let's get into this mode of worshiping him and marveling at him. And then let's turn to the people around us. And instead of comparison, how about compassion? Instead of envy, how about empathy? Let's notice other people in terms of how we can cheer them on, how we can build them up, how we can serve them. Let's not pry into a future, into the future in a way that's, that's unhealthy. I love that ending. The world itself cannot contain all the books that would be written about 
Jesus. So John is an old man. Years later, he says, I can't, even, I can't even begin to put into words. I mean, this is the struggle the preachers have. You know, I, I see something in Jesus that I want to tell you all about, and I can't even find the words because he's so beautiful and so good and so true. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so, brothers and sisters, at Grace Mount Vernon, press on, keep your eyes on Jesus, don't doubt Him, what He's doing in your life. It's all purposeful. It's all worth it. Everything you are doing, He's going to use it. Every little seed you plant, He's using that. Let's keep on serving Him. Let's keep on following Him all of our days. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do marvel at Your Son, Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we worship You as our great King, as our shepherd, and our friend. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that You would take these things that we believe and You would drive them more deeply into our hearts that we'd be able to to follow you all of our days and trust you at every moment. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.